Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Okay. So, I'm probably just going to go through the parts that are most underlined. This is one of... I don't tend to read books over and over again, but this is one of the books that I do reread. I tend to try to reread it at the beginning of every year. I think it's quite a good grounding, organising type of book and I think it's quite good for perspective. I think one of the big things that this book does offer you is a little bit of perspective. I think sometimes it's quite easy to perhaps get a little bit lost in yourself and sometimes it's important to recalibrate and have an opportunity to get a little bit of, of a broader perspective. So I find it very, very useful for that. Maybe I'll start with some of your questions. So, so one question that came in was, is it good to use imagery to fantasize over things that we have no access to? And I thought this was a really, really interesting question because obviously what happens in the book is that, you know, they're in a concentration camp and therefore they have no access to the normal aspects of their lives. They have no recourse to be who they are, who they know themselves to be. They are kind of dragged up out of their everyday lives and placed in this alien and, and harsh um, existence. And and so there's a lot of fantasy. There's a lot of imagining. There's a lot of um, kind of being somewhere else in one's mind. And I, I guess the the query behind the question is, is, is that a healthy thing to do or is it unhealthy to end up lost in your own mind? Um, and I thought it was a good opportunity to talk about what we call in psychotherapy, the sustaining fantasy. And so the, the basic premise is the idea that we all have a kind of fantasy imaginary inner life, you know, so whether you call it daydreaming or whether for you it's a little bit more involved than that, we all have a fantasy life. And even more than that, we think that this kind of fantasy life starts quite early in life. And the children, you know, we, we see that in children's play, in um, imaginary friends and in imaginary play, that there's a normal response, it's a normal aspect of psychological life. But I think in particular that there's, there's something called the sustaining fantasy. So if you imagine that, and I think, I think even... There are some there are some kind of children's literature about this, but let's imagine that you are a child growing up in a very, very harsh or cold or cruel environment. And so you imagine, for example, that you've been switched at birth. This isn't really your birth fa family. Somewhere out there, your real parents are looking for you and they're, you know, they're the ideal parents, right? They're kind and they're loving and they, you know, they're warm and they're, they're missing you. And actually we might think for a lot of people who's, and particularly for children, um, whose external realities are too painful or too much for them to bear, that actually there would be something quite healthy about this fantasy of being special, of being loved, of being looked for, of being wanted by someone somewhere else. And that for, I, I suspect an awful lot of people that this kind of fantasy life actually keeps them going because actually what can happen is that you can end up being defeated. He talks about it in the book. I talk about it in my book. There's actually um, a phenomena called 
colloquially give up itis, which is when you lose a sense of purpose, of meaning, and you kind of give up on life and sometimes die. And so actually there's a way in which our internal worlds, our fantasy lives, can sustain us, and that's why it's called the sustaining fantasy, and can give us a thing to work towards. Where that might become unhealthy is is if it becomes, if it starts to overtake life or it persists longer than its utility, right? So that perhaps when this child grows up and they're now an adult and they're they're unable perhaps to engage in their normal lives because they're still somewhere in their minds engaged in a fantasy world, then we might consider that it's no longer a healthy adaptation. But, you know, that in and of itself, there isn't anything necessarily unhealthy about, you know, imagination, fantasizing about um, things that you don't immediately have access to if it's a way of saving yourself, preserving your sense of hope, I guess. You know, if it helps you to retain a sense of hope, well, then we would consider it a sustaining fantasy and probably something that's quite adaptive. So thank you for that question. And then, so I'm probably just gonna kind of kick off with some quotes that I really like or some lines that I think really stood out and we can have a little discussion around those. And so the first one, is we had nothing so this is on page 28 of this version if you've got this book we had nothing left but our bare bodies and that kind of stood out for me because and I think certainly in in the work that I do it, it occurred to me that some people don't even have that right in as far as some people don't really feel in full possession of their own bodies right some people feel as if their own bodies belong to the world, that the rest of the world, whether it's their siblings or their parents or the world, you know, the magazines, diet culture, um, has the right to tell them about their bodies, who they are, what they should look like, how how they should carry themselves, how they should dress, and, and how stark it is to be in such comparative wealth and privilege but still not actually being full possession of oneself to still feel as though you owe your body to the world and that you have to contort yourself shift yourself change yourself in order to be accepted by the world so there there was this really kind of striking contrast between this idea that he talks about you know all we had was ourselves all we had was our bodies who we are you know our flesh and bone and that there are so many people walking around in you know the modern wealthy privileged west as it is today who don't even have that so um i found that very striking I, obviously that's where it kind of very specific to the work that i do but that certainly stood out to me also on the next page so on page 30 a man can get used to everything but do not ask me how. And I quite like this because of, of course, and one of the reasons that I chose this book is that we're all in this very strange moment of adapting to a new situation. So we're all suddenly being, again, kind of whipped out of our normal lives and asked to exist in a different kind of existence to the one that we expected, not the one that we would have chosen, not the one that we enjoy, not the one that we want to continue with for a very long time. And at the beginning, there was a, you know, a lot of anxiety about how people will cope and what's going to happen. And I think people felt very, very anxious. But certainly one of the things that I think, is it in an interview? I'm not sure if that's been published yet. Um, but one of the things that we also need to remember is that human beings are extraordinarily adaptable, right? That it's one of the key features of, of our species is how capable we are of adapting to new situations and new environments, positive and negative, right? It goes both ways. Um, but it's the reason, for example, that we amongst very few species on the planet can live in different territories from, you know, the, the Arctic tundra to the tropics to desert landscapes, you know, that we, by virtue of having the biggest brain of a, of a land animal, that we have this 
incredible capacity to adapt and to learn and to shift and to mold our environments to suit us, but also to mold ourselves to suit the environments. And so I think it's probably, it's, it's kind of worth remembering that because I think sometimes because we get so used to being in our kind of controlled environments you know we that we live now in an existence where we can control the temperature and you know if we don't like the season we can go and be somewhere else for a bit that we can get so used to the idea of being in a predictable environment that we forget that one of the core human capacities is adaptation and it's one of the reasons that um for example example after a traumatic event or a traumatic experience it's best not to kind of jump in and and offer therapy so for example if there were an earthquake that actually the the scientific literature tells us that what you don't need is a van full of psychologists kind of coming down and saying tell us about your trauma tell us about what's happened to you you know let us help you because actually what that does is to undermine innate human resilience and um, adaptability and actually what you should do is allow space for people to kind of recover by themselves but maybe identify the people who might be a little bit more at risk so the people who might not have a supportive social structure or the people who uh, might have other stressors going on in their lives at that moment so whose innate resilience might already be undermined then you say okay these are the people who might need the additional support of a psychotherapeutic intervention and and you target it towards them but that we need to have more faith in human capacity to adapt and i think you know and tell me if i'm wrong but i think some people have noticed that you know the first couple of weeks of lockdown were tricky and they were unpleasant and we didn't like it very much but people are kind of getting into a rhythm the anxiety you know it's not pleasant no one's kind of loving it well some people are and, and you know maybe we can talk about that um but the anxieties come down you know once you've understood okay I, this is just something that i have adapted to and i can live with a little more then the anxiety comes down and you can carry on so i wanted to mention that one the next one that i got down um was on page 36 of this version and it says that the not it wasn't the physical pain that hurts the most. It's the mental agony caused by the injustice. Okay, let me stop to grab your question. I found that there was parallels between his account and institutional racism and how some members of the black community build up a protective shell, apathy, as they lose hope or have nothing to to believe in, maybe? Yes, I, I think I, I think there are parallels there and and, and of course one maybe we go back to a different because somebody asked the question offline uh when i put the the question post out what motivates someone to inflict so much suffering on another human and there's actually of course you know there's a lot of answers to this story but one of the key things that allows that kind of abuse to happen is dehumanization so that it becomes one of the things that makes it much easier to inflict pain or cruelty onto someone is to stop seeing them as human. Um, and that's, that's, it's kind of a playbook trick. It's a, it's a very common tactic. And uh, Hitler did it with the Jews, with caricature, you know, calling them vermin and rats. We saw similar tactics around the, the Brexit poll in the UK, but also that is the core almost of all racism is to stop seeing the others as human. You know, they are animals, animalistic, not not as intelligent, um, not worthy of, of esteem as humans. And so I think, of course, there are parallels. I think there will be parallels across it with any experience of prejudice and exclusion. And it makes me think of also the experience of, of Romanes that continues now that there's a kind of way in which they are seen as, you know, less than other, not really part of the civilised world of civilised society. So I think, yeah, I think there are parallels across the black experience, across other excluded communities, absolutely. Some of the other things, to come back to the offline question, um, some of the other things that... Uh, make it possible along with dehumanization 
is scapegoating. So when you, it, it's, it's a feature of projection. So when there's something that either you don't like about yourself or something about the world that you don't like, and you can eject that and project it into someone else or whether it's into a, a racial group. Um, and you see that in particular in response to scarcity. So like clockwork, following a, a global recession, you will see a rise in right-wing extremism. It always happens. And, and that's a response to scarcity. So there's a recession, there's less money to go around. We feel like we've got fewer resources. We feel like we are lower down on the rung of Maslow's hierarchy. I will talk about that in a moment as well. And and what happens then when you feel like you have a lack or scarcity, there isn't enough, you pull in, right? So you stop being the expansive, generous, open human that you're capable of being and you pull in and you think, I need to look after myself. And secondarily to that, there's a the feeling that there is a threat out there that's trying, you know, an existential threat that is, is dangerous for me. And again, that becomes part of the, the racial dehumanizing. So, you know, the threat out there when we had um, miscegenation laws, a threat out there is that black people will uh, contaminate the bloodline um, or same with whatever group is being targeted. So that feeling is an existential threat. And in order to make yourself feel safer from an existential threat, you find a scapegoat and a target in order to focus your aggression and focus your your hatred and your fear. Because the idea is if you can bundle up your fear and your hatred into a thing, then when you destroy the thing, then your hatred and your fear go away as well. That's the theory. Of course, it doesn't work like that. But that's that's why you get this response, this, this rise in um, right-wing politics following a global recession or a, or a, or a downturn in the economy. Um, so scapegoating, any us and them scarcity, um, fear. And I've also said a failure in moral courage. And I think this is pertinent a lot. I think about moral courage a lot. The idea that you do the right thing and not the popular thing. And to use an example, I think, you know, it's it's kind of a constant question about what the hell are people thinking when, for example, <laughs> just thinking about um, Trump's press conference last week where he was talking about, you know, using sunlight and, and Dettol to fight the coronavirus. And the, what, it, what it takes, all it takes, is for someone around him, someone in a position of moral authority, of constitutional authority, you know, someone to stand up and say, this is wrong. And that that shouldn't always necessarily have to be the opposition party. That if you disagree with something that's happening in your own party, in your own group, then it's an act of moral courage to stand up and say, you know, this is wrong. That it's not an act of disloyalty, it's an act of moral courage. And I think, I, well, I feel quite sad that we don't teach that. We don't help children to see that they will be valued for standing up for what's right and for, for, risking, for risking popularity. Yeah, I guess being courageous, that what we tend to do is socialise popularity and niceness rather than courage and, and goodness and honesty. So, and, and of course, there was a huge amount of fear. And, I, you know, I know lots of people did stand up um, and do stand up for people. And, and yes, their own lives are threatened. But I think more broadly, what we have a lack of in our current society is is really well, adults, I don't think there are enough adults in the world. Um, there are not enough of our political leaders are grown-ups, but also around those people, I think there is 
a feral lack of, of moral courage. Um, but I will come back to the book. So, sorry, uh, coming back to your questions, I'm currently watching Handmaid's Tale, which I think also explores a concept of what humans can get used to. Yeah, and the question of, of, of moral courage. Maybe I'll, I'll see if I can find a book on moral courage. Um, because again, I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. One of the things we just, we don't talk about enough anyway is, is values. You know, we talk about ambition, we talk about goals and achievements and whether we're, you know, trying to get a promotion or make it the next rung of the ladder or buy our own houses or, you know, whatever those external markers of success are, and maybe we can have a separate discussion about success, but we don't talk about moral or internal values and kind of spiritual growth, I guess we call it, spiritual, psychological, internal growth um, and the value of that. I think that gets missed. I think that's a real shame. I think there are a lot of people living quite unsatisfied lives because we don't have that conversation and that I think people would really uh, gain a lot from it. Back to the old book. Oh, yes. And this one's um, really relevant because I'll be doing a dream session uh, soon. Nothing formal. I'm just, I'm very interested in your lockdown dreams. And um, I think it will be fun just to find out what you guys have been dreaming about um, and perhaps see how that links to some of the external things that are going on. But he says on page 40, a retreat to a more primitive form of mental life. His wishes and desires became obvious in his dreams. And um, I think that's true. I think certainly when we're under a lot of pressure, so we have to understand that being a kind of, I guess, a kind of grown up, organised human being takes a fair amount of um, kind of mental energy. You have to suppress some of your more primitive urges. You have to make difficult decisions. You have to decide between your emotional experience and your kind of cognitive thinking reasoning experience and um and it takes a lot of, of mental energy so when you're under a lot of pressure when you're under a lot of stress and or when you're scared so when your anxiety is quite high then you have essentially less capacity to do that and so we would a hundred percent expect people to revert back clinically that would perhaps be and I've spoken about this before, people going back to old ways. In fact, I spoke about it on um, Holly Grant's um, Chats on the Mats last week, that what we would expect is that you roll back to former ways of coping, old ways of being that perhaps you thought you had grown out of or, or worked your way through. Um, under pressure, you can find yourself going back to that. And similarly, you can find yourself kind of just reverting back to old habits so if you were someone who perhaps you're the kind of person who says oh I have to rely on myself it's all about me I can't trust other people but you had worked to be more trusting and more open and connecting more with people when you're under pressure you'll find that you revert back to that original way of being okay I'm very stressed I better just work out how to look after myself so um, we would expect that to happen um, but also on the on the note of dreams what I said in one of my early flatten the anxiety curve posts was that I would expect the, the people's dreams to become more vivid and, and perhaps more persecutory. So being chased, being followed, that sort of thing. And people have said they're getting more vivid dreams. And it's worth saying that that's because what happens in your dreams, we don't know a huge amount of, of what happens in your dream life, but the fact that dreaming persists through evolution, right? So there are a few, a few things that survive evolution that don't seem to be massively helpful for us, but mostly evolution doesn't like to waste energy. And so the things that persist, we tend to think uh, are relevant. And so the idea that dreaming persists, even though, for example, we have to, because there's a risk of acting out your dreams, your brain has to do this very clever thing where it paralyzes your body in order that you don't act out your dreams, smack people in the face or, you know, and, and so that's quite an investment on a kind of evolutionary level. And so the idea is that your dreams must have, or dream life must serve a purpose. And the purpose that we think it serves um, is emotion regulation and emotional organization. That what happens when you're dreaming, as well as, as your memories being consolidated and, and moved around and the things that you 
learned and experienced today are associated with things that you learned experienced in the past so that you can keep a kind of organized mind but the same thing happens with your emotions that you kind of discharge some emotions or you work through something that was difficult or perhaps something that you couldn't act on maybe you were angry with your boss um, or your partner during the day you didn't act on it but you end up having a slightly aggro dream <laughs> that night that there's something that gets worked through in your dream life and and so that's why it's that's well that's why psychologists and psychotherapists tend to be interested in dreams because more than being a you know there's dream dictionaries are nonsense and um, so it's not like this code means this this and this but it tells us and therefore it tells you something about what's happening for you emotionally and certainly for many people who come to therapy there's there's not that familiarity with their internal world with their emotional world and so dreams can be a helpful way for people to just become more familiar with their emotional worlds and um, i'm going to scroll back to read some of your questions hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part they're all about safe ethical and responsible manufacturing Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I find moral courage fascinating, not just standing up for what they believe in, but also how they do it. It's a constant debate in the vegan world. I, yeah, and I think maybe I'll go off on a tangent on them. Um, on diets maybe we'll come back maybe I'll, we'll do a diet book and we can come back and have the diet conversation but i yeah i think there's a big question about again you know whether you you're doing something for yourself for someone else um for that kind of sense of external validation or, or from a, a place of self-possession and i think that certainly certainly gets played out in food a lot I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about what happens to the brain when you enter starvation. How long lasting are the effects and the preoccupations with food? And this was linked to another question that came up, which was, um, what's the recovery period for the brain and the body after severe malnourishment? That's a, it's a slightly tricky question to answer in as far as, of course, eth ethically, we can't starve people um, just to see what happens when we feed them again. Although back in the 60s, I wouldn't have been surprised if that did happen so a lot of the trials where we get information about recovery from starvation come from people who have been through real world uh, malnourishment or starvation so the big trials are the dutch uh, following the dutch hunger winter and some really interesting research has come out from that and, and interestingly of course um, from people, brain scans of people in recovery from severe anorexia, for example. So, of course, it, it, it's worth saying and worth saying, I think, more for people who are voluntarily restricting their diets. That, of course, when you're restricting your diet, you're not just restricting your body. You're, of course, also restricting 
your brain. You're limiting the nutrients that are available to your brain. And your brain is a very nutrient and energy hungry organ. So it will respond to that restriction very quickly. So that is, of course, you know, I'm here to help you look after your brains. Um, So that is always my caution. Don't forget whenever you eat, you're feeding your brain. So whenever you restrict, you're restricting your brain as well. What follows from there is that we know when people are severely malnourished or starving or, you know, uh, have a severe restrictive eating disorder, that there are brain changes. And that's often because, you know, one of the things that goes out of the window when people go on diets or when they start to restrict is fats. And actually quite a high proportion of the brain is composed of fats, in particular essential fats that you can only get from the diet. And so there's quite often a very, very quick reduction in the availability of essential fats, which actually make up the brain when you start restricting your diet in that way. Or of course, if you're in a situation of famine or or malnutrition. On refeeding then has to be very, very, very careful because you can get a a negative effect of of refeeding too quickly, you know, kind of refeeding syndrome, uh, which can mess with your electrolytes and, and put your heart at risk. So refeeding has to be done very, very carefully. After anorexia the severe anorexia brain and where there have been brain changes it can take several years sometimes up to five years for the brain to five years after restoration of weight for the brain to recover certainly if someone thinking about the omega-3 fatty acids uh, which make up 30 percent of the brain cell membrane and help the brain to fire if you're severely deficient in those it can take actually around six months of supplementation for the membrane to be properly saturated in those fats so in terms of those nutrients it's you know six months so a while it's worth remembering of course that the brain is plastic so it can recover but um, with the trials that came out of the dutch hunger winter um, one of the big factors was the epigenetic changes so that women who were pregnant or who became pregnant during the Dutch hunger winter or, you know, uh, at the start of it. Um, So therefore they were pregnant during a period of malnourishment. And what they had identified is changes in the genes of the babies that made them more likely to hold on to energy so that the children were more likely to be overweight and had a high tendency to obesity because they had these genes that kind of held on to energy. So that there was a way in which there was an intergenerational effect of the experience of of malnourishment. So it's a big old complex question. And, And it's one of the reasons that for example, with the podcast series that I've got coming out around, um, the impact of nutrition on brain health, that for example, if you're not getting, go back to the essential facts, if you're not getting enough, uh, for you, let's say you're a woman of childbearing age and you're not getting enough for you, then if you become pregnant, then there's going to be an insufficient amount in, around to build the brain of your baby. So we've got an, a, a generational difference there. And then it would, you know, that thing that would trickle down. And so it would take actually then a couple of generations to bring that back up to a healthy level. So uh, it can take a while. It needs careful consideration. It is possible, but there may be other changes that are either in you or then end up kind of down in the generations. Um, Okay, back to your questions. Yes, so people talking about how they went back to a place of threat lockdown, but felt better once it was in place. So exactly, once you had that clear framework of, of how to be and what was expected of you. I think a lot of people felt that anxiety come way back down again. All right. What do you think about what he says on page 48 to 49? The truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. I think, well, well, what happens is that we then have to end up having a conversation about what's the definition of love. You know, are we talking about romantic love? Are we talking about something like agape which is more of a a love for humanity you know are we you know do i just love love as brethren kind of thing um are we talking about what people would consider as a kind of oneness you know love in terms of a connection with the planet or with something higher i think there's a big question a discussion to be had about the idea of the question of what love is but 
I guess I would struggle to think of something more worthy to aspire to. There are, I think there are a few things in the planet that can compel people, you know, compel loyalty, compel acts of strength and sacrifice that the, we, we think about um, a lot of sometimes, you know, we, so <laughs> I had a friend at school who started doing sociology and turned to me one day and just said, uh, love is a social construct. I, I kind of thought, well, that probably just tells me that you, you've never really been loved because I think the, the experience of love is something quite different from a social construct. And so I think I would probably agree until such a time as I could think of a better answer. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with him on that. Sarah's asking, do dreams have meaning? Sarah, I would say hang tight until we do um, the dream session, which will probably be next week, probably a dream live. Uh, and we'll talk about, we'll talk all about dreams. Is it possible colitis is depending on the mental, on mental issues like stress? So please go and um, I've done an IGTV and it's called the psychological side of IBS. Uh, where I talk all about the role of um, psychology and stress on on the gut. And I take you through a formulation so you can understand that. So colitis is slightly different because IBS is a functional gut disorder, whereas um, colitis is an inflammatory bowel disorder, but it can be stress sensitive. So there will be parts of it that are relevant to to colitis. So I would recommend you go and watch that video. Is this the same for IF, intermittent fasting? In terms of, I'm guessing, uh, the response to um, restriction, I have a whole chapter on fasting in my book. Fasting is different, except whilst you're here, I'll, I'll say, there is still a question mark about the safety of fasting for women. A, because most of the trials, uh, as with almost all of medicine, um, is uh, most of the trials are done on young men. And so there's less understanding of the effects of anything, whether they are medication, antidepressants or nutritional interventions on women. So there's that issue. But more broadly, it's because irrespective of whether a woman wants to have a baby, her body, from an evolutionary perspective, is primed to have a baby and is very responsive to signifiers of the amount of energy availability in the environment right so the idea is that the 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 woman's body is responsive to famine right so because of course if you're pregnant or have a, a baby if there's a period of famine then you're more likely to miscarriage miscarry or um that there will be high levels of infant mortality. So for over an evolutionary period, that what happens when the body recognises that there is insufficient energy availability is that it shuts down fertility. And that's what we see, for example, in in anorexia or in restriction, is that when there's insufficient energy availability, irrespective of whether that person is underweight, it's about energy availability, then you see a reduction or a drop in fertility. And the the further risk of that isn't just about fertility, it's about the other things that fertility hormones do in terms of, for example, estrogen is neuroprotective, it protects the brain, about around bone health, which is why we see osteopenia. And so there, there are cautions and I think any anyone but perhaps particularly women who are uh, restricting energy needs to do it carefully and to think about how their body responds and if you if you know your body doesn't respond well to it then that's probably a signal that it's not a good match for you but I've done a whole chapter on it in my book for this very reason so uh, please do have a look there Afia I feel like you're trolling me now what nutrients are good for the brain please read my book (laughs) Um, literally um it's the biggest chapter in there. So um, do you have a look there? Gosh, sorry. I've, I've obviously missed a lot of your questions. Um, I told myself that we were back to some form of normality by June. It was interesting to read about the man who believed. Yes. So this is the other thing to, to be careful of. So, so, so this person saying that they had said in to themselves, we will be back to normality 
by by June. Um, of course, this is not the same um, kind of extreme example, but in the book, he talks about Frankel talks about a friend in the camp who had had a dream that they were going to be liberated on the 30th of March. And he was he was sure of it. He was certain of it. And he kind of built himself up to it. And they weren't. And then he gradually, as he got news from the front that it didn't seem to, that liberation was coming, he became less and less well, um, kind of collapsed on the 29th and, and died on the 30th. If you've got my book, there's a, there's a, if you look in the index, there is a term called giverpitis. And it's the idea that under, in situations of chronic stress, that we are, and the example that I give in the book is that, you know, when you've got a couple, you see, you, you see it quite a lot. There's a couple who've been together forever, right? Let's say they've been together the 70 years and they get, you know, they, <laughs> They're going on in their lives, and um, but one of them dies, and then you see a very rapid decline in the other, you know, or that the other dies on the anniversary, or you know something like that. And there's this idea that it's possible for us to give up on life, you know, if we stop having that sense of connection to life, to the value of life, to meaning, to purpose. It's one of the reasons I talk about purpose so much, not in this extreme sense of of dying, but I guess of a psychological or internal death. If you don't have something that makes it worth it, it becomes very, very difficult to find the energy to get up and and face the world and be in the world. Because it's, it's difficult to be in the world. The world slaps you in the face quite a lot. And if you if you can't, if you don't have a compelling enough reason, then it becomes very difficult to tolerate those sorts of insults. Um, and of course, that is exactly what he gets at. This is the, the basis of logotherapy is that he says it's the, the people who could identify for themselves a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. And it didn't have to be, you know, we don't all have to aspire to to be Oprah, right? We don't have to aspire to have the biggest or the most or the, you know, but if it's something that is compelling enough for you, if it's something that means something to you, or if it's something that you feel adds to the world, then that can be the thing that keeps you going. And that when we're stripped back, when we're, we're, we're the, when we have the least, when we have everything taken from us, what we retain, he talks about in kind of two things, is this capacity to find meaning and that at its most base, that that meaning can be to bear your suffering with dignity, to, you know, and, and uh, when I think of that example, because that sounds quite stark, but when I think of that example, I think of Nelson Mandela, right? That he was abused and he suffered, but the thing that he most comes to mind for is the dignity with which he bore that and the meaning that he took from that no it should never have happened not endorsing you know this will be taken out of context you know but it was the 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 dignity of how he endured which becomes the light that people respond to it becomes that symbol of something stronger, something deeper, something that cannot be extinguished, something that cannot be taken away, that when you strip someone of everything, of their dignity, of their humanity, of their freedom, that what you still, and this is, the, I think, the most powerful part, that what you still have the power to possess is your own internal dignity. I think, you know, and, and that's kind of what I take. And that's the example that that comes to mind for me. Sorry, slight tangent there. What about the exist? Oh, you guys are getting deep today. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> All right. What about the existential, existential vacuum today? Would you say we're still at the same place Frankel observed in America's 80s and 90s? I think we have options, right? Um, <clears throat> so... Yes, there is, sorry, um, there is great opportunity for us to be outside of our own minds and distracted from ourselves. 
for example, uh, in fact, let's use the example of Instagram. So Instagram presents us with a platform. Instagram in and of itself is not vapid. You know, Instagram is neutral. It's about the use we make of the opportunities before us, which will, how we use those opportunities that will imbue it with meaning or not. So if you use it to sell uh, weight loss lollipops that don't work and hurt people, I would say that, that you're contributing to the existential vacuum. Um, if you use it to offer people resources or support or signposting um, or just a place of community, I would say that you are using it to create meaning. So I think it's about... I, th I think it's difficult because it's easy to be drawn into things. And this is why I, I think a lot about kind of self-possession and, and people um, and moral courage and being aware of who you are and, and, and what your capabilities are and what your choices are. People often forget that they have choices. We end up sleepwalking through a lot of our lives, I think. But to remind ourselves that we have choices, we have autonomy. Um, and I say that because, you know, even in clinic, I will meet people who say, Oh, but I, um, I can't do that. You know, I, I can't, oh, I don't know, argue back with someone or I, you know, I can't tell my friend that I'm upset with her. And then the question would be, why can't you? You know, and, and it's this idea that actually what that person has done is created an illusion of an unbreakable law. And what they've done is to forget their own autonomy actually you have a lot of agency here you have a lot of power you have choice you have options what are you telling me you can't do are you telling me actually that you can't bear the discomfort of how awkward the conversation would be are you telling me that you can't bear the fear of the end of that relationship are you telling me that you can't face uh being rejected that's those are different things that's not actually the inability to act that's not the it's not a fact that you can't do that thing so I think there's this we often forget or get socialized out of you know this often this comes from parents or society from culture from religion um, we get we get the message that our minds aren't our own and you know frankly what a lot of um therapy is, is reminding people that they have their own minds, um, that you can make your own choices. So yeah, I'm not even sure where, how we got into that, but we did. All right. Okay. So I'm going to just quickly pop back to, um, I think I just want to make sure that I would, I definitely get to one or two things that I definitely wanted to say, um, before we go, because I know Instagram is going to kick us out of here very soon um so ah yes so on choices at page 75 and there were always choices to make every day every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision a decision that which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self your inner freedom which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become moulded into the form of the typical inmate. So, so that's what I mean about holding on to that inner sense of, of freedom, because he's talking here about those inmates who, and he said that he says that there are a few of them, you know, they weren't the majority, but they were able, these are the people. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. So that there were people, even in these circumstances, who, who maintained the capability for kindness, for generosity, for empathy, for compassion. And that whilst not all of us will always be able to achieve that 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 capacity remains available to all of us and that we can try momentarily every now and again to connect with that capacity was something I really wanted to say then there was what did I want to say ah and this will probably be 
my parting shot for you guys uh, on page 82. Emotion, which is suffering, ceases to be suffering as soon as we form a clear and precise picture of it. Underline that because for me, that's kind of the essence of therapy. What we do is that we try to take something, an emotion that feels overwhelming, that feels just vague and just, you know, in your body and painful and awful. And we try to make it clear and precise. We try to put it a little bracket around it. And that bracket is the word, you know, so that discomfort that you're feeling in your stomach, that churning feeling is anxiety or it's worry or it's sadness. And that when we do that, when we can give something a word, when we can encapsulate it in a word, then it becomes tangible and it becomes something that we can think about, you know, and, it, and if, it's, if you can think about it, then you can bear it, you can tolerate it, you can manage it, you can process it. So take your emotions seriously don't ignore your feelings and yeah maybe that's all I've got for you so thank you very much for joining me on the quite a deep existential <laughs> um, book club this month I will be back tomorrow with um, next month's book um, thanks again I really do appreciate you giving me your time it's our one non-renewable resource um, so I'm very grateful for you guys giving me an hour of your day and I hope you found it valuable and I will see you next month hey it's Danny Pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.